Welcome back to the Pactum Factum podcast, the superpower of everyday negotiation. I'm Lucia Cantor St. Amour. Negotiation is everywhere, every day. This is the Negotiation Laboratory, where we share insights into basic skills, strategy, history, storytelling, behavioral sciences, and social trends. It's all connected. We are all connected. And everyone can learn the everyday negotiation superpower to be used only for the forces of good. I've mentioned this a few times already. Kids are natural negotiators. Motivated, curious, imaginative, persistent, to name a few effective traits, and inquisitive. Kids, especially young kids, ask tons of questions. Where do bubbles go? Why don't we have tails? Are there more bricks in the world or feathers? Why can't we breathe underwater? (laughs) I I used to wonder that one too. (laughs) (laughs) And what do you call the in-between spaces on a comb? How do I know I'm real and not just a dream of someone else? Now that one, that's very profound. Well, and I might refer a parent to the public library with the inquisitor of that last question to check out a copy of Pedro Calderón de la Barca's La Vida es Sueño. Uh What's the purpose of questions in negotiation? Well, obviously gathering information would be a major one. Gathering information, sure. What kind of information? Well, let's see. I guess what what each party is seeking, what each party needs from the other, I guess, right? Needs, yes. What else? Hmm. Yeah, I know. I'm really testing you, huh? <laughs> Curiosity of to course. show interest in the other side and build rapport, which I talk about constantly, to test assumptions, check your understanding or get clarification, as in, what do you mean when you say it will be a stretch to get approval? Get an opinion. It's also an opportunity to listen and express empathy. Suppose your counterpart has received three phone calls from complaining customers during the span of 15 minutes. You might ask, are you having a tough day? Ooh, I like that idea. You're building rapport instead of just becoming yet another problem for the person to deal with. Exactly. And here's another that I think is forgotten. Asking for help. Now, I need to pause to voice a quick note on gender disparity when it comes to questions. And I'll warn you that this is phrased using cisgender vocabulary because that's the way in which it was studied at the time. When Linda Babcock and Sarah Leshever, co-authors of Women Don't Ask, Negotiation and the Gender Divide, wondered how come male graduate students were teaching their own courses while female students were always assigned as assistants. Her dean said, more men ask. The women just don't ask. Aha. That is pretty basic. Yeah, pretty basic. Uh, So drawing on psychology, sociology, economics, and organizational behavior, as well as dozens of interviews with people in different fields and at all stages in their careers, 
Women Don't Ask explores how our institutions, child-rearing practices, and implicit assumptions discourage women from asking for opportunities and resources, kind of perpetuating a vicious cycle of inequality. Women Don't Ask counsels women how to ask and why they should. Wow. And that sounds like, I mean, that's just a totally valuable resource for every aspect of your job, whatever it is. Wow. Makes sense. Before we discuss the use of questions during a negotiation, we need to talk about questions to consider in advance of a negotiation. This harkens back to earlier episodes where I walked you through 10 steps of planning. And the first question to ask, consistent with step one of planning, is what is the problem I'm trying to solve? This is not a question to be given cursory consideration. Sometimes you think you know what the presenting problem is. For example, school absenteeism and how to reduce it. Okay, time to talk solutions. Well, maybe not. Maybe what you're seeing is the manifestation of the root problem or problems. Okay. Okay, well, I'm I'm trying to think right now what the root problem could be here. It's not immediately obvious to me. No, it's not. So dedicating time for research and extremely focused thinking and writing it down of problem identification and definition can save you hours, even days of work and negotiation time later on. Alexandra Carter, the author of Ask for More, walks us through 10 questions, five of which she calls mirror questions to ask yourself, and five are window questions to ask the other party. And the focus of Carter's book is on the internal negotiation with yourself and using certain key questions to increase your own awareness. See step 10 of planning in the planning episode, right? That makes sense. We have to do a little prep work. That totally makes sense. Don't get it. We're not going to immediately know the answer. Okay, good. <laughs> makes me feel better. Now, the, the nuances of Carter's 10 question approach track the priorities of the superpower of everyday negotiation that I'm imparting here. Carter actually uses the school absenteeism example. And without going into specifics, after engaging in the process of asking investigative questions, which she so aptly describes as spending time to save time, it turned out that the root problem in that school district wasn't lack of interest in learning or parents not prioritizing school, laziness, or even transportation. It was because the kids didn't have clean clothes and would stay home out of embarrassment. That is fascinating. And you know, it's definitely not something that would have occurred to me immediately at all. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah, nor to me, Nina. It, it definitely required some sleuthing. With this information, the school district partnered with local businesses to provide drop-off clothes washing services at school sites. And the percentage of students attending school 90% of the time leaped from 46% to 84%. That is brilliant. And wow, what a wonderfully innovative way to get at the heart, the root of the issue. That's fabulous. That's a really great story. So let's look at two main types of questions. The first is closed, ended, and restrictive. These can be answered briefly with a yes or no. These are useful for obtaining a specific bit of information, directing a conversation to a desired area, or gaining commitment to a definite position. For example, 
you'll send the revised quotation by Monday night, right? Closed-ended questions can be useful in parenting by offering the illusion of a choice. Would you like peas or broccoli with your mac and cheese for dinner? Or would you like your bath before or after watching a movie? Now, that is a great parenting hack. Pay attention, parents. (laughs) (laughs) Closed-ended questions are the category used in cross-examination during trial or a deposition where the inquisitor needs to retain as much control as possible so that the respondent doesn't launch into a narrative. Exactly. Here's the second category. It's open-ended and expansive. These do not lead your counterpart in any specific direction. Generally speaking, open-ended questions reveal much more about your counterpart's objectives, needs, current situation, and behavioral style than restrictive questions. For example, how do you feel about moving out of your home before the holidays? Or you seem uneasy with my offer. Which aspects are the biggest obstacles? Now, watch out for the statement dressed up as a question. Kids and spouses are particularly crafty with this one. Are we there yet? Are you going to just stand there with the refrigerator door open like that? (laughs) (laughs) Those are not questions. Those are opportunities for reflecting back the emotion underneath the superficial words. Remember our two episodes on listening. You're tired of being in the car, aren't you? Or you seem agitated. What's on your mind? Exactly. Ooh, we need to pause for just about 30 seconds to talk about our sponsor, the Empowered Cookie. High fiber, low sugar, paleo, vegan, small batch, from scratch. It's the Empowered Cookie. I've been consuming and sharing them for years. I share them with my son's special education class, where many students have special dietary restrictions. They are yummy and so satisfying that I can often only eat half for a snack. Empower your eating routine with the Empowered Cookie. Empoweredcookie.com. Enter code SUPERPOWER2022 for a discount at checkout. Now, Lucia, what would you say are some of the keys to proper questioning? Well, I can suggest five. One is that you have a plan. And this should sound familiar, me and planning, right? Yes. Uh, (laughs) Have a goal in mind. Ask yourself, what type of information will help me make a good decision? Am I more likely to get that information by being direct or by disguising my questions? Another one is to know your counterpart. This also harkens back to episode three in planning. The more you find out about your counterpart, the better you can target your questions. A third one is move from the broad to the narrow. As you gain information from answers to broad questions, start asking questions that yield more specific information. For example, if you ask someone selling a car, did you keep maintenance records? And they say yes, you can proceed to ask about the type of records, the frequency of maintenance, et cetera. So this is laying foundation, this key lawyering skill. Exactly. That's what you and I have been trained to do, right? You have to lay that foundation first. Another one is to use proper timing. Be sensitive to your counterpart's feelings. If they find the question offensive, they'll provide less information and be less willing to negotiate. For example, asking someone how their diet is going while they eat a dessert is a good example of bad timing. 
That is an excellent point. I know I would be annoyed by that question. Definitely. (laughs) And the fifth one is ask permission to ask a question. Asking permission is, it's just good manners. And it starts the swing towards agreement. Once you gain permission, your counterpart is more likely to give you a complete answer. You know, I never thought about that, but that actually makes great sense. I'm going to use that one. Right. While you are engaged in the questioning process, remember to then use your listening skills. Pay close attention, not only to what is being said, but the emotion between the words, mannerisms, gestures. Also notice what they aren't saying and what Uh they do and do not answer. There's a reason this podcast is ordered as it is, with listening airing before questioning. It's all part of the design, folks. More than that, as I've learned from various hostage negotiators, who I would always invite to my law class for the, quest- the questioning module, you can only start in with the questions after you've built rapport and trust, which we've covered in one of our very first episodes. Yeah. I'd like to talk about a particular hostage negotiator, this one quite famous, and he never visited my class. During the 2020 shelter in place, when everything shut down and schools were closed and hadn't even begun to design remote learning, I mean, when everything just plain stopped, my boys were a freshman and sophomore in high school at the time. There was no way I was going to let them sit around all day on YouTube or playing video games. Good mom. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Nina. (laughs) Fortunately, I had the means to purchase a Masterclass subscription, as in masterclass.com. And I have a feeling they saw a booming influx around that time. Yeah, I remember seeing a lot of commercials for Masterclass online then. Yeah, they probably saw an uptick in business. I figured it was a fun way for the boys to pick their own classes, quote unquote, and from celebrities they knew and liked. So basketball skills from Steph Curry counted as PE. Aaron Sorkin's screenwriting class counted as English composition, and so on. I noticed a course on negotiation by none other than Chris Voss. And if that name isn't familiar to you, I'll fill you in real quick. He was a hostage negotiator with the FBI for something like 30 years author of a best-selling book, the title of which I absolutely love because I was like a broken record always saying this to my law students, never split the difference. And we can go into more detail on that another time because it's its own little rabbit hole. The dude has life or death negotiating skills under serious pressure with police blockades in place and sharpshooters waiting for the signal. Wow. Sounds intense. Yeah, intense for sure. And like my own hostage negotiation from from episodes 9 and 10, the tools he teaches are actually very applicable to everyday negotiations. I'll share two nuggets that really stuck with me from the class because they are directly on point with this episode, questioning. And the first one he calls no-oriented questions. Now, I was trained on the Fisher and Urey getting to yes and getting past no Harvard program on negotiation concept of, well, persuading people to say yes in a negotiation. But Chris Voss turns this idea on its head and his reasoning really resonates. Trying to get someone to say yes is kind of thorny. Is it a trick? Can you be trusted? It 
signifies commitment or making promises, and they don't want to be pinned down. No wonder it's so hard to do. Yeah. Instead, our very clever Mr. Voss teaches the no-oriented question. That is, getting them to say no, which gently and naturally leads them to a yes. No is safe. No isn't a commitment. No leaves you options. For example, would it be totally unrealistic for you to get back to us with an answer in the next 48 hours? Or is it impossible for you to give some wiggle room on price? Or how about, would it be bothersome if I followed up in a week? That is a totally new way for me to think about negotiation too, Lucia. I mean, it totally flips the paradigm. I'm going to have to digest that for a little while. Well, and and try it out. Yeah. So the second one is that he cautions against using the why question, as does Alex Carter, author of Ask for More. He says, why puts people on the defensive? I think the example he uses is how when you were a kid and you'd break something in the house and your exasperated parents would ask, why did you do that? And you'd done something wrong. You had to defend yourself and you couldn't. Instead, exactly. and this is where, right? Yeah, <laughs> this is yeah. where Voss's techniques dovetail so nicely with the mediator toolkit. You ask about how someone might make something happen or what makes it important to them. What does that do for you? What led you to that conclusion? What factors went into your decision? How would that work? How do you see that playing out? Who are some of the people that could help make that happen or get in the way of X, Y, or Z happening? Who can help or would need to be involved? When do you need to know? When did you decide that? Look at all these ways of asking questions without putting people on the defensive. Now, Another hiccup in the why question, though Chris Voss doesn't talk about this aspect, I don't think, is, you know, people may not know why. That's a tough question to answer. Exactly. If you ask me why my favorite color is green, I might say, I don't know. It's not a rational thing, Nina. I just like it. But if you ask me, well, what is it about the color of green that appeals to you? Or even how do you feel when you see hues of green? I might say, oh, it reminds me of lying in the grass as a kid and looking up at the sky and smelling the grass and it makes me feel relaxed and free and it looks nice against the tone of my skin or how content I feel when I observe the beauty of the endless shades of green and the trees and hills and mountains around my home. Well, now we're getting somewhere. You know, I was just thinking that, Lucia. The word why, why with a question mark is often described as the eternal human question. And it's precisely for that reason, because it's so difficult to answer in a concrete way. It's really kind of unanswerable, and yet we keep asking it. And that makes it great for poetry and literature, but maybe not so great for trying to work out logistics or come to a really specific agreement. Yeah. Right. So those are a couple of things I really took to heart from Chris Voss. Oh, and I do sometimes ask why. When I do, It's calculated in a situation where, because their behavior has solicited this from me and it seems appropriate to do so, I want to actually put someone on the defensive. So there's still a place for the why. 
Oh, I can think of some really good, really pointed why questions for that purpose already, but they might be a little too pointed for negotiation, if you know what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) I do, Nina. I figure by the time I'm loading up the why question, the recipient has probably earned it. (laughs) (laughs) Good. (laughs) We'll end this episode with a bit of a tease. Magic question number two. We talked about magic question number one in episode eight, part two of listening. And that one was, is there anything else? Well, there's another magic question that I used to teach my law students when it comes to questioning. And we'll reveal that in the next episode when we also do a demonstration and debriefing of a questioning exercise. I can't wait. Me neither. (laughs) Thanks for listening, or even partially listening while you multitask. You never know what might stick with you. Keep your ear out for this space because we sure do appreciate your company. I'm Lucia Cantor St. Amour of Pactum Factum, which is Latin for a done deal. You can find me here on Substack and on pactumfactum.com.